Okay, if you will take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews. We come to the seventh chapter once more, starting again at verse 11. If you will join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Starting at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people needed the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For this priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Let's pray. God, we ask that you give to us grace in this day. And let us consider the wondrous, glorious gifts that are given to us by the perfection of our high priest. Let us consider what it is that the old priesthood has passed away and that the new priesthood has come, bringing with it the gifts of Christ and the gifts of his presence and the gifts of his glorious grace. And we pray, God, as we come into your presence this day, that we would see the mark of your hand on all of our lives. Teach us to love and honor Christ, that he would be exalted. And let us obey from the heart every word which you have said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're thinking about this new priesthood, and we're thinking specifically about the gifts that have been given to us in Christ. And this morning I want to think with you in the context of our distance from God. Since the beginning of mankind, our relationship with God has been a dance of distance. How close do I have to get? How far away can I orbit and still have the hope of heaven? This essential attitude is because of the barrier that our sin created, which the law of God defined. But the hope of the gospel is that the barrier to God's presence has been removed by grace through the blood of the Lamb. Through His working, we have access even unto the very throne of God. And this access is not a result of our work. It's nothing we have or could ever have earned. It is rather a grant woven into the very fabric of God's work throughout all of human history. It is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it grants us boldness in our dealings with God. But it's a boldness birthed in humility, having received all by the working of another. So as we begin to think about this, I want you to contemplate what it was before Christ. How we have been blessed finds its grandeur in what the situation was before this blessing came. So under the old law, we were not sons in truth, we were slaves. We were in bondage to the law. And this was a bondage of fear. Look at me at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 21, Paul speaks of this bondage in relationship to the two sons of Abraham. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So what Paul is pressing here is the reality that under the Old Testament law, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to the law 
Because our sin was a reality in our lives. From the very beginning of time, man has been under bondage to sin. And what the law did was define that sin and defined the parameters and made it so explicit, so clear, that there was no way in the world that we could ever deceive ourselves that we were not under that bondage, that we were free somehow to do things well. At every turning, the law constrained us. At every turning, the law showed us our failure. At every turning, the law reminded us of our rebellion against God. And this was not by accident. Because sin was so destructive to the entirety of a man's being, every single aspect of our lives was ruinous. And this was our condition under the law. In fact, the scripture tells us that everybody who did not keep the entire law was cursed. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. We read this morning in Psalm 119, um, starting at verse 5, it says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all of your statutes. Right? If you have a right understanding of the law and no understanding of grace, every time you look at the law, you walk away feeling condemned. If you understand that the law is given by God and that it is just and true and proper and that God's word and God's commandment are without fault and without flaw, when you look at that law and you look at your own life, you can feel nothing but condemned. There is no other option. Any person who says, well, I'm a pretty good person, either is lying to themselves about their own value or is ignorant of the strength of the law. Amen. They, they just don't understand what the requirements are. They think the requirements are something like, well, don't murder anybody, mostly be faithful to your marriage vows, and don't get caught stealing. And if I can avoid those three things, then I'm, I'm pretty much okay. Oh, and don't kick cats. I don't know why that one's on the list, but in most people's mind it is. Or puppies, I guess. I don't know. The, the point is, is that our standards are so ridiculously low that we make them attainable. But when we look at the law of God, the standards are so infinitely high that they are not only not attainable, they are impossible. It's a standard of perfection. And it's a standard of perfection that goes from the beginning of our lives until the end of our lives and it is a cumulative perfection which is required. It means that at no point in your life can you ever have violated God's law even once. Because if you have not kept the entirety of the law, you are guilty of violating the entirety of the law. Even the specific things that you did not violate. Because the scripture tells us the same lawgiver told us all of the things of the law. So they are all as important to God. Every single one comes from him. Now, this knowledge in the life of Israel prior to the coming of Christ was such that they knew they were sons by the promise of God to Abraham. I, I have given you these children. They are sons to you. They will be sons to me. These promises were made to Abraham. They knew they were the people of promise. They knew that they were a special people unto the world. But at the same time, they had the constraint of the law that was accusing them of their constant failure. And it left them distanced from God. They were slaves and they lived in terror of a holy God who in their heart of hearts they actually hated and they wanted distance from. I want to get as close to God as I have to and not one millimeter closer so that I can convince myself that I'm okay. And if you think about it for just a minute, that statement defined your life before Christ. I want to feel good about myself, so I want to come as close to God as I have to so I can retain the illusion. But I don't want to come any closer to that because then he's going to take away my fun. Right? If I get too close, then I can't do the things that I want to do because I know God doesn't like the things that I want to do, but I really don't care what he likes. I just want to feel like, I want to be able to believe that I can get to heaven. And that's where most people live. They live in this boundary land of saying, I just want to be as close as I have to because I know the truth, but I cannot accept the truth as it is. And the truth is this. When the law was given, Israel was as close to God as they ever were going to be 
prior to Christ, until the coming of Christ. They stood at the mountain of God. They saw the fire descend. Moses went up to, to the top of the mountain. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he heard from God. And where was Israel? They were at the base of the mountain, melting down the gold that they stole from Egypt, making false gods and saying, you are our God. And beloved, that's as close as they ever got. God was near them, but they were not near him. And when Moses came down from the mountain, the Bible tells us that he was glowing from his encounter with God. He literally was, was illuminated like a light bulb, and it freaked them out. It scared them. So much so that they said to him, look, man, don't, don't look at us with that shiny, shiny face. It scares us. Put a mask on. So Moses covered his face with a veil while the glory departed from him. He wore that veil for a long time. And Paul makes this connection in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Now this is the bondage that their lives were under. And the reality is that this bondage left them with this desire for distance. This is the fruit of sin. This desire for distance is a result of our sin, but it is also the root of the law. And it began all the way back in the garden. Think about this with me. When Adam and Eve were formed, the Bible tells us that God walked with them in the cool of the evening. Now, whether it was Jesus in a pre-incarnate form or whether they just walked and the Spirit of God was powerfully with them, you could make the case either way. I think that Christ came down and walked with them. I think that there was a physical person there. I think it was a pre-incarnate Christ. And I think that they communed with him in a powerful way. When Adam and Eve sinned, what was their immediate response? Hide from God, right? Listen to how it's put in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed leaves together and made themselves covering. So the first thing they wanted to do was to cover their nakedness. They were exposed in their own sight. They wanted to hide. They didn't like the truth that they had seen. They didn't like the reality. Okay, now my life has been marked out by this rebellion. And there was clarity in that initial rebellion. There was clarity in what they were doing. They knew it was wrong. Don't let anybody tell you that they, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that was an apple pie you gave me. Don't, don't buy that garbage. Adam had already rebelled in allowing his wife to engage with the serpent. He had already abdicated his authority. Sin had already entered in before the fruit was even taken. It was a foregone conclusion. That's why we talk about the sin of Adam and not the sin of Eve. He was responsible. He was the head of his household. It was his authority, it was his responsibility, it was his sin. And immediately, as soon as their eyes were opened and they recognized the reality of what they were, what they wanted to do was hide from the truth of who they were. And how many times do we do the same thing? We will tell ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as all that. We will tell ourselves, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not as bad as this person. You ever notice there is always a tendency in us to compare down I saw this in the group home. It was always this way. We had 10 kids in the house that I worked in. And on average, you'd have two kids at the very bottom who weren't doing anything but getting in trouble all the time. You'd have six or seven kids in the middle that were good or bad, depending on the day. You'd have one or two kids that were working the program, doing everything right. And when the kids in the middle got in trouble, they never said, hey, look, I'm not doing as well as the kid at the top, because that's not how it works. They always pointed at the kids that were a wreck from the beginning and said, I'm not as bad as him. Right? Now just stop for a minute and ask yourself this question. When the Spirit of God comes to you and deals with you regarding your sin, do you own it and confess it as sin? Or do you look at somebody whose life is an absolute wreck and comfort yourself by saying, well, I have it more together than they do? Because that's human nature. And this is what Adam and Eve were doing. When they sewed together their coverings of fig leaves, they were hiding from themselves the reality of what they were. But they didn't stop there. Because the next verse tells us, verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they had enjoyed this fellowship with God. They had enjoyed this communion with God. They had enjoyed this time with God. And their immediate response was, first I'm going to hide from myself, and then I'm going to hide from God. And this is mankind. This is what we do. This is how we rebel against our God, and we do it all the time. And then lastly, Adam and Eve lied and cast blame, even upon God, to absolve themselves of the responsibility of what they had done. Verse 12 of chapter 3 says, The man said, That woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Wow. So he blamed Eve and he blamed God. If you hadn't given me that woman, I'd have been just fine. And immediately... God says to the woman, what happened? And she says, well, it was the snake. He deceived me and I ate. What the scripture tells us is that when they saw that the fruit was good for knowledge, they wanted it. You see, in the end, our sin always captivates us by what it promises. It always captivates us by what it says. If you do it this way, you can have it. If you do it this way, I'll give you this desire of your heart. And beloved, if you'll think back over the span of your life, I promise you, you will recognize the truth that at every single turning, when you have walked away from God, it has been a desire for something that you should not have or should not have in the way that you wanted it or should not have at the time that you desired it. Sin promised something that it didn't have the right or the power to give. And all it gave you in the end was sorrow and misery. You see, this this separation is the result of our sin, and it is the constant idea that drove the giving of the law. And when the law of God was given, this idea of distance was woven into the people's hearts. It was already there. So much so that what they spoke of... Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is one of the most astounding places in Scripture to me. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting at verse 23, it says this. Moses is giving his recount of the people and when the law was given. And it says, So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with a man, yet he still lives. This is, okay, we recognize something tremendous is going on here. So far, so good. Now, therefore, why should we die? For if this great fire will consume us, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all the flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near. And hear all that the Lord our God may say, and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear it and do it. Then the Lord spoke, heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They're right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me. And I will speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving you to possess. So the people of God heard the voice of God speaking. They had the revelation of God on the mountain. They had the manifest presence of his power. The fire had descended upon the top of Mount Sinai so much so that the top third of the mountain, the Bible tells us, was blackened as with fire. And their response was, yes, Lord, come closer. No. Their response was, please don't ever do that again. You scared us to death. Don't speak to us. Don't talk to us. Don't come near us. We don't want to really have anything to do with you. You tell Moses, because apparently he digs this stuff. You tell him what you want to tell us, and then he'll tell us. 
Does it sound like their heart was for God? But tell me the truth. Is it any better than our hearts are sometimes? You see, this distance is baked into us. This desire to have what we want to have and still have some semblance of God, it's hardwired into our fallen nature. This, this rebellion against God, this determination to go our own way and walk in our own truth and identify whatever it is that we think we want to identify so that we can have whatever it is that we think we want to have regardless of what the truth is and regardless of what God has said. This is baked into all of us. And it's easy for us when we look at segments of our society that are running the course of this insanity with, with such reckless abandon, it's easy for us to look at them and go, well, there's sin. But beloved, we have to be willing to check our own hearts and recognize that the same pattern is real in us. Maybe not to that extent. And maybe not that outwardly obvious to the rest of the world. But it's the same pattern. God, I don't, I don't really want to hear your voice. I really don't want to deal with you. I just want enough so that I can feel okay. Because when God comes over us and into us and, and around us in every way, he's going to wreck your life. He's going to undo everything that you've built, and he's going to conform it to his way of doing things. Amen. And most of us are really uncomfortable with that process, so much so that we pull the stops out and go, nope, never mind. Not really interested in that. I'll, I'll obey this command because it fits my vision. It fits my comfort zone. It, it fits the places where I like it to be. But the rest of these things I'm not going to pay attention to. And I can kind of get along with that because if I'm careful about what I listen to and who I hear and where I go and what I do, I can convince myself that I'm doing enough. But when I come into the presence of God and I listen to his voice and I speak with him, he's pretty relentless about making sure that I hear what he wants me to hear. And so the safest thing for me to do if I'm going to continue to walk in rebellion is to limit my interaction with God just enough so I feel okay. And this is a way to ruin your life. It's a way to walk in darkness because in the end, the place of God's presence was closed off from of them. And none of them could enter. None of them wanted to enter. The holiest place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, that, that cubicle in the center of the temple where the, where the Ark of the Covenant sat and the presence of God was under the wings of the cherubim, the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. Once that was assembled and put together, nobody saw it. The high priest would enter in once per year with the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of atonement in his hands and a rope tied around his ankle in case God was offended with him and struck him dead while for being in the presence in an unholy fashion so they could drag his carcass out so it didn't rot and stink the place up. This was the reality of their interaction with God. Do you think the high priest wanted to be in there? I doubt it. It was a great honor to be the high priest, but I don't think that particular day was especially high on his list of woohoo! Because it was marked with terror. It was a reality that marked out every single aspect of the Old Testament interaction with God's people. But the attitude of grace. Instead of being, how close do I have to get? Is, how may I get closer to delight in the presence of God? Amen. And this is what marks us as followers of Christ. It is an attitude of grace, which is born of what God has made us to be. We are transformed when grace makes us live. We no longer want to do what is evil. Rather, we learn to feel about sin what God himself feels about sin. Have you noticed, since you've been saved, when you've fallen back into the old ways, and if you've done something that you weren't supposed to do, that it's not nearly as much fun as it used to be? I hope you have. I hope you've come to that awareness that sin just no longer has the desire and the, and the appeal and, and the attempt to permit and even justify our sin. Well, 
it's evidence of a dead heart. And so when people start talking about how I should be allowed to do this thing. I should be allowed to engage in this relationship. I should be allowed to follow this and go here because it's what makes me happy. Don't, don't bother me with what the Bible says. Don't bother me with what, with what you think God says to me. I just want to follow my heart and I just want to be happy. When somebody speaks in that way, what they're telling you is, I don't know God. I'm lost and I'm going to hell. And you need to understand that truth because we are engaged in a culture where huge swaths of the church are peddling that lie. We are engaged in a culture where huge swaths of people who would name the name of Christ and confess that they are followers of Christ have nothing whatsoever to do with what Christ has said in his word and what Christ has told his people and instead are determined to follow the dictates of their own hearts. But what the scripture tells us is that when we are saved, this is what we say. Romans 7, verses 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I delight in what God has said. My heart hungers after God. My heart hungers after his word. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So what Paul is confessing there in Romans chapter 7 is, yes, I still sin, but it is the reality that my heart and my mind, what I want is God. And instead, sometimes I am captured by my sin, but even when that happens, my heart rebels against my sin. I don't love it like I used to, because I love God. And I love his truth, and I love his ways, and I want to make him happy. And as miserably as I fail at that, it is still my desire. Why? Well, it's because God has transformed our minds, and he's transformed our hearts, and he has given us a hunger for his word. Psalm 110 verse 3 says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. You will be volunteers. In other words, your will and your mind become aligned to what God wants you to do in the day that he saves you. Not not before he saves you, but after. God changes your heart. When his power comes over you, suddenly you want to do what God says. When his power comes over you, you desire to agree with him. You desire to obey him. You desire to be on God's side no matter what. The cry of Joshua to the people of Israel, who's on the Lord's side? That's the cry that our heart answers. Me. I am. And it's not because we've been convinced by some human argument. It's not because of the power of our will. It's not because we we somehow overcame it. It's because God moved in power over us and we became willing volunteers according to his power being worked in us. This change affects every single part of our life. And our entire attitude towards God's law is now one of delight and longing. Psalm 119, I'm going to read several verses out of it. Verse 16, it says, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24 says, Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Verse 35, Make me walk the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 47, I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. Verse 70, Their heart is as fat as grease. In other words, they've got all the good things the world wants, but I delight in your law. Verse 77, let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verse 92, unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. This is a transformation that shapes us. This is a transformation that changes every aspect of our character. It changes the way that we relate to God. It changes the way that we see Him. It changes the way that we hunger for Him. Instead of wanting distance, we want nearness. 
Instead of wanting anonymity, we want to know Him. We want a closeness with God that shapes and flavors the entirety of our lives. I do not want to hide in the back of a giant congregation so that I am not challenged. I do not want to be away from the God that has called me. I want to be engaged with Him. I do not want to just get in and do my time and get out and leave me alone for the rest of my life. I want to engage with God, and I want to engage with God's people because I know that in that friction and tension between God's people, I am refined according to His grace. I want people that are going to challenge my life, and I want people that are going to welcome me to challenge theirs. I want to know that everything in my life is being conformed to the commandment and the statutes of my God, not because I think that by doing so I'm going to be more favored in His sight, but because He is my delight. And I want to be like Him. And I know that in my own sinful nature, there is still the old man Adam within me that wants to sew my coverings of fig leaves and pretend that I'm something other than I am. But I expect the people in my life who love me, who love God, to be willing and able to speak truth into my life. To say, look, man, let me tell you, there's something not right here. We all need those people in our lives. We need each other for that purpose. We need each other to speak truth. And we need each other to come alongside and hold us accountable and hold us up and hold us together so that our lives might reflect his glory. Because our desire and our obedience are oftentimes at cross purposes. This is what Paul was telling us in Romans chapter 7. In my inward man, I desire the law of God. I delight in his truth. But I recognize there's an old man, there's a nature still within my flesh that wars against my mind. And I find myself captive to that old law. This is the main reason why God has put us together as a body, as a family. It is to hold one another up and to hold one another accountable for the purpose of holiness. This is the calling of God in our lives. And this core, this this reality is always about a hunger. It's always about a longing for the presence of God. I want to be more in Him. I want more of Him in me. I want to be closer. I want to be closer. I want to be more like my God in every single way. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter says, Repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So when we're near to God, when we stand in His presence, we are refreshed. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 and 12 and 13 says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. Do you want to know God in the same way that he knows you? How does God know you? Perfectly. Do you want to know him in the same way? We should. We should desire to have a knowledge of God that is born in the same fashion that we have been given life. By his grace and for his glory. Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself to appear now in the presence of God for us. And Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The truth is, is that the experience of heaven is this constant presence of God. That that is the reality of what heaven is going to be. There are a lot of things that the world thinks about heaven. There's a lot of things that people who would tell you they are Christians Think about heaven. They'll read books about people who have died and come back to life, and they've had these near-death experiences, and they will take their word over the Scripture. They will take what these people have testified as of more value than the very word of God. 
And they will talk about their dreams and they will talk about their visions and they will talk about their understanding and they will talk about all of these different things. But the truth of the matter is what the Bible confesses is the true meaning of heaven is the presence of God undiluted for all of eternity. Amen. That is heaven. It is God. And wherever God is among the people who love him, they are in heaven. Think about that. The experience of a church that is functioning properly is a taste of what heaven will be. The experience of delighting in the presence of God as God binds us together is just a shadow, but it's a taste of what heaven is going to be. It is the glory of God manifestly present among the people of God. Listen to how John describes it in Revelation 21. He says this, I saw no temple in it. That's the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. This is the presence of God. And in the end, what we understand is that if we have been given this, this hunger for God, this awareness of God, this desire for conformity to His image, this is not something that we've worked up. Remember, natural man wants to be only as close as he can to deceive himself that he might get there. But a converted man loves the law of God and recognizes without any apology of just how fallen we still remain. I can confess my sin because I know that in my sin I am not rejected by God because I am not accepted because of my external righteousness. My sin does not change the fact that God accepts me. It, it wasn't a part of Him accepting me in the first place and it has nothing to do with Him to continue accepting me. It is 100% the working of God, which means that in my acceptance I have been given boldness. Because I understand the truth that God invites me to come into His presence, not by my work, but by His. Amen. I quote it every week, but here it comes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the ground of our acceptance in God's sight. Do you notice there's nothing in there about your work and your righteousness? There's nothing in there about you doing a good job. There's nothing in there about you sanctifying yourself. There's nothing in there about anybody else interceding for you. There's nothing in there about any saints praying for you, any merry intercession. There's nothing in there about the church saving you. The only thing that's there is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is why you are accepted into the presence of God. Amen. Now understand this. If the finished work of Jesus Christ is why you have been accepted into the presence of God, then you are accepted into the presence of God regardless of how well you live. So come boldly into the presence of God, confessing your sin, and find in Him forgiveness. Do not allow your sin to separate you from your God any longer because His plan is always to display His eternal wisdom. His plan is always to display what He's been doing. And understand that the best way to display the wisdom of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the strength of God and the power of God is to display the gospel in full glory, which means your sin as well as His righteousness. Don't be afraid of it. I'm not suggesting, as Paul also attributes, may it never be, I'm not suggesting that you sin more, that grace may abound. But I am telling you that you need not allow your sin to present some false idea of righteousness so that you begin again to sow fig leaves for yourself. What was the covering that was offered to Adam and Eve that actually covered them? It was the covering that God provided. He sewed for them skins of an animal and gave them covering for their nakedness. He invoked the blood of another on their behalf. He covered them. And beloved, understand this. If you are found in Christ, He has covered you. Amen. 
And if He has covered you, He has covered you fully and completely without flaw or any other spot or blemish. You are accepted in His sight. And the purpose of God throughout all of your life and throughout all of history is to display this. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 8. God is displaying His wisdom. He is displaying the perfection of His plan and of His will. And here's how Paul describes it in Ephesians 3. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. What is it that brings us into the presence of God with boldness? It is the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. It is the finished work of Christ. So much so that somehow, according to the mystery and the perfect will of God, even your sin has been covered in a way that brings glory to Christ. This is a reason to come into His presence. This is a reason to come boldly before Him. As sons, we know our privileges within the house of our Father. And we go boldly into His presence. We come into His presence with confidence. Because we belong here. Right? Our home is our home. Every single one of my children, though they don't all live with me any longer, they still have a key to my house. My home is their home. It's their home. They lived there. They have a place in it. It may be a couch, but they have a place in it. The truth is this. As sons and daughters of the Most High God, we know our rights. We know our privileges as children who belong to the house. We know whose we are. And since we know whose we are, we also know who we are. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says this, Moses indeed was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So think about this with me for just a minute. Was Moses ultimately rejected for his sin, denied permission to come into the promise? Well, he was accepted into the presence of God, but the promise Moses was living his whole life for was what? Canaan, right? And in the end, did his sin bar him from acceptance and him coming into that promise? It did. But here's the truth. He was found lacking as a servant, and as a servant, he paid that price. But it did not affect the fact that he was still a child of God, and ultimately Moses found his way into the ultimate promise and into the ultimate place where he was aimed for. He found his way into the presence of God. And beloved, so also do we. We in Christ not only have the promise, but we are the very promise of God unto Christ. We are his house. And so Christ knows his privilege as a son over his own household. And we are that household. We are the promise of Christ. We are the promise of God unto Christ. And as such, we have been granted full access into every privilege which that fact entails. And this knowledge comes to us only through a heart which has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It comes to us only by the knowledge that we have been made accepted by His work and by His blood. Because in the end, it was the blood of Christ filled with actual love towards the Father that has changed us. 
What was it that motivated Christ to die in our place? It was love. Was it primarily love for us? No. What did Jesus pray in the garden? Not my will, Father, but thine. Jesus submitted to the cross. Yes, he loved us. Please don't mishear me. I have been horribly misquoted when I make this point before. Please don't mishear me. Yes, he loves us. But the primary motivation for everything that Jesus Christ did while he was on the earth and everything he does now is love for the Father. And the primary motivation for everything that God does is love for the Son. Yes, he loves us. But he loves himself more, and he should. And his love for us is expressed in drawing us into a relationship with him where we might know what this love, which is worth the loss of all things, is actually founded and rooted and what it actually is made of. You see, love wants what's best. If I love you, I want what's best for you. I have to. Or I don't love you. If I say I love you, but I want something for you which will hurt you because it's better for me, is that love? No. Love wants what's best for you. And God wants what's best for you. What is best for you? Himself. Do you understand? If he loves you, what he must want for you is a right relationship with him. 1 John 3.21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. On what ground would our heart condemn us? Well, if we're building our relationship with God based upon our own righteousness, we've already established that our own righteousness is not going to make it. But if we're building our relationship with God upon the finished work of Christ, then your heart has no grounds to condemn you whatsoever because your righteousness has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Our hearts cannot condemn us when we are understanding properly who we are and why. Love has been perfected in us among has been perfected among us in this 1 John 4:17 that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in the world. Do you want to have confidence when you stand before God on the day of judgment? Make certain that your anchor, your hope, your trust, your everything is in the finished work of Jesus and nowhere else. Do not allow anything to enter into your thinking which says, hey, I'm pretty good. Do not allow even an inch, even an iota of the smallest fragment of belief that you had something, anything to do with your salvation. Rest in the finished work of Christ. And trust that it is his power from start to finish that has made us acceptable in God. Because this acceptance by God of our person grants us confidence in his presence. Did you hear what I said? God accepts your person. He accepts you fully and completely. God doesn't accept you saying, you know, I, I, I'm going to accept Jared, but Jared, I really wish you were a little bit different. That's not how he talks to us. He doesn't say, I'm going to take Kathy, but man, I'm going, to, I'm going to wish she was other than she is. He accepts our person. He accepts us exactly as we are. If there are changes that need to be made, he will change the outside to reflect the inside. He will change the way that we behave. He will change the, the working of sin in our lives. He will change us and conform us. But that does not mean that he does not accept us. Because his acceptance of us is rooted and grounded in his work, in his finished, in his death. It is his power. And he is the reason that we are accepted. And with this in place, we know then that we have boldness to enter. Because Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest place, that place that nobody ever went in, that place that nobody wanted to go in, we have boldness to enter into it by the blood of Jesus. Amen. 
You see, the sacrifice has already been spread. The blood of the sacrifice has already been sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the veil that divided us from the presence of God has been rent in two. According to the gospel, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Not as a man would have torn it, but as God did it to demonstrate that we can now come in. It is the fullness of God's pleasure to delight, to give to us access to Himself based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And beloved, in the end, we have to trust what God has said and rely upon His promise. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This access to God, this desire for access to God, even before we have access, we have to want to be in His presence. It comes from Christ. It comes from His work. It comes from His life. It comes from His death. It comes from His blood. It comes from His resurrection. It comes from Jesus. And the whole package of what it means to belong to God is wrapped up in one word, Jesus. Amen. It's His name. It's His power. It's His place. And everything revolves around the person of Christ. Everything. Beloved, our hearts should sing with glory at that knowledge. We should delight in coming into the presence of God even when we've messed it up. Why? Because our mess-ups do not change the fact that we are welcome in God's presence. Because it is God who has made a way through the death of Christ. Hear me. If you have this right, you understand this correctly, you need never be barred from the presence of your God. Come boldly into His presence. Warts and all, stink and all, filth and all, bring it into His presence. Do your business with God, but do not ever stay away because you are afraid you are not worthy. Come boldly. And be welcomed as a son, as a daughter, as a child of the Most High God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity as we think on these things. I pray, God, that you would help us put aside the misconceptions and the lies that have been fermented throughout the church. And I pray, God, that you would let each one of us rest in the confidence that is ours in Christ. Let us come boldly into your presence because you have given us that right. Not because we deserve it, but because you have made it so. And let us recognize the truth that in that reality, we need never fear to come settle things with you. God, forgive us for our hesitation. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for the times that we allow our sin to keep us from your presence. And let us walk in faithfulness all the days that you give us life. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen.